We're beginning a new series of sermons today that probably will last into the coming year, but I know right now I've already scheduled November and December. Now, whether or not we'll go into January or not, I'm, I'm actually contemplating already starting a, another series the 1st of January out of an interesting passage in the Old Testament. So uh, I'll be praying about that, you be praying about that, but at least for uh, the rest of this year, we're going to be looking at some of the stories that Jesus told. In his book, Interpreting the Parables, uh, Archibald A.M. Hunter begins by saying this, The importance of our subject may be gauged by the fact that the parables of Jesus comprise more than one-third of his recorded teaching. I found that interesting. And then he goes on to say that not a day passes, but we quote the parables, often unconsciously. And I thought about some of the examples he gave, and some of them I used to hear years ago, but some of them we still do. Uh, Like the idea of acting like a good Samaritan. Or you'll hear somebody refer to the 11th hour. Uh, Those are both from the parables of Jesus. And you know, while my message today is going to be an introduction to the parables, and you do have an insert in your bulletin there for you if you want to take notes, I'm also going to look at what appears to be the very first of the first group of stories, parables that Jesus told, the sower. And uh, it's found in Matthew. It's found in our text of today, for today, which I'm choosing to use Mark's gospel, and also in Luke. Three of the four gospels have this parable. Now, I've often said that when something's repeated, that, that means it's probably important. And when it's repeated again a third time, that we really need to take notice All three of the Gospels have this particular story that Jesus told. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the volume of the material that's contained in the parables already. But another reason why I've chosen to do this series comes in the opening words of Mark chapter 4, verse 2. It says, And he was teaching them many things in parables. Matthew has a very similar phrase. And he told them many things in parables saying, Jesus loved to use stories as he moved about teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And again, as I've enjoyed reading, you know, a part of my preparation for sermons is it starts literally months before I start the series. A couple of months ago, I started reading a couple of small books that I have in my library on the parables and and starting to read with care those passages as they would come up in which there is a parable. And then, Kay's had in, in my hands for over a month this whole list of sermon titles and texts um, for all the way to the end of the year. And so it's, it's a process that I go through. So I might not spend a lot of time this particular week. It might be as I am putting the, the wrap on it. Because like in this case, uh, she had the insert on Monday. 
uh, the outline for this message as early as Monday. And so through the rest of the week, I've kind of been putting the wrap on it. But one of the books that I really enjoyed was an old book in my library, but an excellent book that I quoted from, A.M. Hunter's book. And as part of his introduction, he tells the story of a little girl, apparently one of those little girls who was a part of the Sunday school program and who on some unknown occasion was asked what part or parts of the Bible that she liked the most. To which she responded by saying, the like sayings. And I thought that was really cute as I was thinking about it, how many of the stories, the parables, Jesus begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like... And here was a little girl that picked up a, that on that. And I really believe that a strong case can be made uh, that with the probable exception of the Lord's Prayer, uh, the Beatitudes, the 23rd Psalm, there's probably no part of Jesus' teaching, nor of the Bible as a whole, that's any better known or loved than the parables, the stories that Jesus told. So let's begin today by defining what a parable is. The English word parable comes from a Greek word parabole. And that word parabole means para, to come alongside. To come alongside. So what we have in the parables are stories that compare one thing to another. In the parables of Jesus, they are used to compare some act of common everyday life with some reality regarding the kingdom of God. And there's no single uniform type of parable. In fact, the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the LXS, XX, if you see that in, in all caps, LXX, it's the number 70, uh, that's one way it's referred to. It's also referred to as the Septuagint. The Greek version of the Old Testament uses this Greek word parabole uh, when it talks about the Proverbs or the songs or even some of the allegories that are there in the Old Testament. And Hunter helps us a little by defining or describing three features that seem to be pretty much common in all of the parables that we're going to be looking at over the next seven weeks at least. First, they're basically examples of popular first century storytelling. Jesus wasn't the only one telling parables. You can find them in some of the other first century extant writings that we still have and get a hold of. Uh, and some of the common rough rules of storytelling are found in parables. Things like repetition, building up in the story. The use of contrast, such as poverty and riches or wisdom and folly. Often what is called the rule of three. Uh, I guess long before sermons had three parts, it was common for the rule of three to be there also. And of course... The building of tension. The stress in order to spotlight. Like, think about it and we'll come back to it. The Good Samaritan. First a priest. And he doesn't stop and help. Then a Levite. And he doesn't stop and help. And then this lowly, 
dirty, unloved, by society of that day, Samaritan. The story builds. Second, not only are they a good form of storytelling, but they also arise out of real life experiences. Everybody sitting there listening to Jesus tell one of these stories would have been familiar with the context and what he was talking about. Stories that were, in fact, instruments of controversy. Stories that were constructed to confront people with a clear and inescapable understanding of God's purpose. And though I could give several more, we need to understand that they're also meant to evoke a response. When Jesus would begin with something like, what do you think? Don't you think their ears were starting to perk up? Or at least the question would be implied? And then he would follow with a story in which the judgment agreed upon in the story was to be applied to a current situation or to a crisis. And the storyteller often is putting themselves in harm's way. It was not uncommon after Jesus would tell a parable for the parable for the Pharisees to say, I think he was telling that about us. And then they again start planning to kill Jesus. Think about the Old Testament for a second with me. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Prophet Nathan. When Nathan goes to King David about what has taken place between King David and Bathsheba, and her husband, Uriah the Hittite, he doesn't confront the king head on. No. He comes to him with a story. A story about a poor man who owned a, a ewe lamb that was precious to him. A lamb that, according to Nathan, the poor man brought it up and it grew up with his children and him and was like a daughter to him. Yet, the rich man who Nathan says had very many flocks and herds took that poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for a traveler. Remember how David responded? It says David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he told Nathan, that man deserves to die. In verse 7 of 2 Samuel 12, Nathan said to David, you're the man. And when David was able to think for a minute and then transfer his own judgment regarding the man to himself, which he more than likely wouldn't have done if Nathan would have confronted him on head on. I mean, our tendency is to become very defensive in times like those, isn't it? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, that hadn't even come into the story in 1 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel 12. But David understood that when he took another man's wife and had sexual relationships with her outside of marriage, and when he had that man killed, he was not just sinning against that woman and against God, I mean against the husband, he was sinning against God. Parables 
are a common form of storytelling that arise out of real life experiences that are meant to evoke a response. That is, after they sneak up on us. So let's, let's look at our first parable. Uh, and let's do it in the context in which we find it. That is, Mark's Gospel. In chapter 3, you'll have to go back and read it because I'm not going to take the time to read it all. In chapter 3, Mark records four responses to Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees want to kill him and accuse him of being demon-possessed. Then in verses 7 to 11, the crowd seeks him out as a miracle worker, but only to be employed by their own purposes. Then, his own family, his mother and his brothers and sisters, concerned that things might be getting out of hand, they think that he's out of his mind. You understand that, don't you? You understand in our New Testament, in one of our Gospels, Mary and Jesus' brothers are thinking that Jesus is out of his mind. Mark 3, verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And then in verses 34 to 35, Mark tells us about some people who Jesus identifies as his true mother and brothers. They were people who were sitting at his feet in order to listen and then do. That is, practice his teaching and therefore do the will of God. So here's my question. Is it possible that the four types of soil in the story we're going to read represent the four kinds of responses that have just been presented in the previous chapter? I think they do. And even just as likely that they foreshadow responses that will come later. So let's go ahead and get into the text. Mark chapter 4 verses 1 to 9. Again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. There's an interesting story that's found in Numbers chapter 13. Old Testament. Uh, Remember, I've told you over and over again, if we're going to understand the New Testament, we need to be understanding the Old Testament. The Israelites have come to the Jordan. The promised land is right there in front of them. They can look out across and see the promised land on the other side of the river. So what does Moses do? 
He sends 12 men out and commissions them, one man from each tribe, and He commissions them to see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether the trees in it, or whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. I don't think it's just me. It might be. But look again at the repetition. Verse 18. See what the land is. Verse 19. Whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. Verse 20. Especially verse 20. Whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not. Now this is a story that every Israelite would know. Because they were taught the Torah over and over and over. The question of Moses is, how is the soil, the land? Three times he comes back and focuses on the land. Why? Why do you think that? A friend of mine, Jim Powell, has written an excellent book that I highly recommend. I've got a copy of it. I think I got an extra one and put it in our church library, but if not, we'll get one. And I'll order some for you. Uh, the book is titled, Dirt Matters. The Foundation for a Healthy, Vibrant, and Effective Congregation. Listen to what Jim writes in the introduction to his book. He says... I am absolutely convinced that one of the main reasons so many churches are struggling and feel as though they are not reaching their full impact is because they are unaware of one of the basic elements of a healthy, vibrant, and effective congregation. The soil. He goes on later in his book to tell about the difference between his Uncle Grover's land and the land his grandparents owned, both of them in southern Illinois. Listen in with me. The conversation continued for several minutes as my relatives explained to me that not only was my grandparents' land much better in quality, but also given the same circumstances and all the same variables, their land would routinely produce twice the harvest as my Uncle Grover's land. The same seed, the same fertilizers, the same effort, the same conditions, but twice the harvest. Now here's what you need to know. Uncle Grover's land was adjacent to the grandparents' land. It wasn't far away. He goes on. Even if my Uncle Grover were to use extra seed, extra fertilizer, extra effort, and have optimal weather conditions, his field would still not produce the same yield as my grandparents. Why? The answer is obvious. Dirt matters. It really does matter.
Now I began this parable because I began with this parable because I think its placement in the its placement in the Gospels is important. It's the first parable recorded in both Matthew and Mark, and also the length of the parable. It's longer than most, almost twice as long as what most of the parables are in the teaching that we have recorded from Jesus. And the fact that we don't have to assume or guess at the meaning. In all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus patiently provides the explanation. And it's the only parable in Mark for which we're given the interpretation. You can read Jesus' explanation later in chapter 4, verses 13 to 20. And although the parable seems to be very clear, the disciples ask the Lord its meaning. Chapter 4, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. By the way, did you notice that as Jesus begins to explain the parable, he moves directly to the seed? Think about it if you've read through chapter 4 in the past. Jesus doesn't identify who the sower is. And in fact, he doesn't even identify what the seed is. Although I think from Mark's Gospel, we should understand that Jesus is the sower and the seed is in fact the message. For instance, chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that as John the baptizer was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God. Chapter 1, verse 39, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Preaching the message, preaching release. And chapter 4, verse 1, as our chapter begins, we're told, again, he began to teach beside the sea. He is the one, and he is sowing the seed. The seed is sown. And he begins by, with the explanation by stating that the seed he is sowing is the Word. Tanlagan. Not a word, but the Word. And we're given the definite article. In fact, in his book, The Parables of Jesus, Joachim Yeremias makes a point about how the absolute use of the Word, Tanlagan, by Jesus only occurs, only occurs in the interpretation of this parable about the sower. Eight times in Mark, five times in Matthew, and three times in Luke. And nowhere else. The Word. Nowhere else is that used by Jesus. Now it's used by John in the beginning of the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. But Jesus doesn't use it. This is the only place where as he's explaining the parable he's taught. You see, I think John understood that Jesus was in fact the last word. And as he sows that seed and as we sow that seed, the word from God uh, is important in that there is an urgency. This is the day of salvation. This is a time that is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, in other words, how God establishes reign in our lives, the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. And people need to repent and believe the good news. Now, I hope you noticed 
that in all four scenes of the parable, the sower doesn't change, nor does the seed change. The only thing that changes from scene to scene is the soil upon which the seed lands and the reception uh, and harvest that result. Seed is sown. Much different from the advanced ways in which seed's planted today. I was shocked actually when I moved here and realized that they weren't plowing the fields. I said, how do you plant the seed if you're not plowing the field and disking it? And they said, oh, we punch plant it. I had never heard of that term. In that day, it was much like we sow grass in a bag. Some, some have those little carts you push, but at our house, we still have a bag that the seed's in, and I grab a handful and cast it out over the area where we're, we're needing some help. And you know what? In that day, they did plow. But you know when they plowed? After they cast the seed, not before. And the emphasis of the parable seems to be neither on the sower, Jesus, nor on the seed, but on the soils. Because dirt matters. Four different kinds of soil. And though I understand that technology has identified literally dozens of variations. I, I know Jordan was involved in that kind of stuff last year, uh, going out and all. I, I've been told that there are literally dozens of different kinds of soil, each needing a particular application of, of fertilizer or something on the same field. Different areas of the same field. And there are disagreements as to how many basic types. Well, again, when I was researching this, I found five, six. One article even, it was even titled, Ten Types of Soil and When to Use Each. But for our purposes, Jesus identified four. And I think it's possible that as he surveyed those people in front of him, those that he had encountered as he sowed the seeds of the gospel, he was confronted with four kinds of people. Four kinds of soil into which the seed of the Word of God had been cast. And Jesus linked the basics of how soil works to the condition of the human heart and the ability of God's Word to produce fruit in it. And we're told about the hardened path. Those like the teachers of the law who had allowed themselves to become hardened, so wooden that something new was unthinkable. The rocky ground, like the crowds who were superficially attracted to Jesus, as long as there was good food and good music. But as soon as things changed, the level of their commitment was so shallow that they didn't last. I've seen that sadly so often at church camp where kids will, near the end of the week, they'll just be so on fire and then with six months they're not involved in their church at all. And the next summer they're coming back wanting to rededicate. Oh, it didn't last very long. I've seen all of that hype at concerts. And I'm not just talking about Christian rock concerts. I'm talking about good southern gospel music concerts. 
I've seen people that would go and attend those and they just look like they're on fire and then you would never see them in church. They're members of a Christian concert club or something. I don't know. Then he talks about the thorns and the weeds. Possibly thinking here of his own family who had allowed all the wrong concerns to overwhelm them. Or the Pharisees who were so concerned that Jesus was eating with sinners that they couldn't see the change that had taken place, for instance, in the life of Levi, the tax collector. But then Jesus refocuses and thinks about the positive. Those who had, in fact, responded in a positive way. The leper of chapter 1 in Mark, who when he was healed, right, Mark writes that the leper went out and began to talk freely about it, his healing, and spread the news. Jesus had already said, don't go tell anybody, but he couldn't hold it back. He was so excited about the change that had taken place, he went out proclaiming it everywhere to the point that Mark says that Jesus could no longer even enter a town. People were so excited because of what that leper had done. Now, in terms of application, because our time's quickly getting away from us, I don't think that we can overstate the value of prepared soil. You see, the dirt really does matter. Just as the soil was important to Moses in terms of what the promised land was like and the potential that it had, just as the soil was important to Jim Powell's Uncle Grover and his own grandparents who farmed in southern Illinois, the preparation of our minds and our lives in terms of how God can and work through us and on our behalf is very important. Don't sit around all week watching junk on the idiot box and reading books of trash and then expect one hour on Sunday morning to just move you in a significant way. It's not going to happen. When the hearts are hardened, shallow, or overtaken with thorny concerns and weedy thoughts, the results in our lives will be limited or not existent at all. And look again at what Jesus says about the good soil. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's not addition, folks. That's multiplication. Now let me explain how the difference is in the church between addition and multiplication. If I preach on Sunday morning to 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, about 18 of us, plus the little ones. That's 18 points of contact. And if I do that each day, you can multiply that by 6 more, which is 108. But if you, 18, do that each day this week, for six more days. Take a day off. Take today off. That's 108 times 18. You see the difference? 
That's why the Bible doesn't emphasize us being saved. It emphasizes us becoming disciples. There's a difference. A person who is saved sits back and thanks God for being saved. A person who is made a disciple goes out and tells others about how thankful they are for being saved. I think this is the main point of the parable. In spite of the losses and risks experienced by sowing the seed into the open ground, even on a somewhat windy and unstable audience, the kingdom of God will succeed beyond expectation. Do you understand that a 10% return was counted as a good harvest in biblical days? 10%. And what's Jesus saying? Hey, with the, with the kingdom of God, you can expect 30, 60, 100%. So let's wrap this up. By way of conclusion, I think there's a good reason why Mark remembered that Jesus framed this parable with what's called an inclusio. He begins it, verse 3, Listen! Behold! In other words, pay attention. By the way, this is just a little technology thing. Do you know how many times I had to go back and tell PowerPoint and Microsoft Word, no, I mean inclusio, not inclusion. <laughs> Quit correcting me. There's more to this story than what appears at first, Jesus is saying. And his last sentence, his conclusion is, he who has ears to hear, that is, those of you that are willing to listen, let them hear. Let them hear. The invitation to be part of the kingdom of God is still offered today. But the sad truth, the sad truth is that human nature being what it is, in every audience... There are those who are like the trampled, hardened soil. There are those who are like the thin, shallow soil. There are those who are like the weed-invested, thorny soil. And there are some who are like the good soil. So my question is, is how can we prepare ourselves to be fertile soil for the seed of God's Word? and nourish the seed of faith that God plants within us. You see, one of the ways I think we can do it is by becoming people of the book. I didn't ask you at the beginning of the Word to read through the Bible this year just because I wanted you to have something to do. When I was a school teacher, I never gave busy work as homework. Never. Not once. If I gave an assignment, there was a reason behind it, and that's why the next day when we began, we went over that homework to make sure that the reason I had given the homework did its thing. We need to be reading God's Word. Jesse and I are on our way through the New Testament now, as you are with the program that we did through the Bible this year in one year. But this makes our third time through the New Testament this year. 
And I'm going back through the Old Testament for my second time this year. And you know what? I am learning new things. I am seeing new things. I am picking up on things that nowhere in my 18 years of living under a minister's house roof and going to church, I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Sunday night, every church event, every revival meeting. 18 years, four years of Bible college, four years of graduate school and two master's degrees, four more years of a doctorate. I am seeing things in all of those years for the first time. A nuance. Something that is emphasized that I didn't pick up on the emphasis. We need to be reading God's Word. We need to be praying. This morning I added a fourth time to my times of prayer, my scheduled times of prayer. I'm still going to be reading, uh, every day, praying every day at 219 for us in our area code. I'm still going to be praying at 603 for where Eric's at in New Hampshire. I'm still going to be praying at 815 every evening for Illinois and the camp area. But this morning, I was encouraged and I added to my alarms 4.13 and I told them I'd do p.m. please, not a.m. But I added 4.13 because that's where Jason and Bonnie Ham have been commissioned and are setting out to plant a new church in the area of Springfield, Massachusetts. Stopping to pray. Bible reading, prayer, time alone. It's another discipline that we can use. Not to just sit and be lonely. Good grief, loneliness isn't going to help anybody. But we do need times of solitude. Times of being alone to commune with God. To listen. How can you prepare the soil of your mind and your heart to receive the seed? Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We thank You so much that You have given us Your Word. Your Son, Jesus, the Word that became flesh. And Eskineson, Tabernacle, made His tent right here with us. Thank You. And help us daily, not just Sunday mornings, but daily, to work on preparing the soil of our minds and our hearts for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.